Well, when we last left the Apostle Paul in Athens, his vacation was not providing him a lot of R&R. He was provoked by the idolatry he saw. We looked at this last week. And he responded by engaging not only in the synagogues, but in the open public realm of ideas in the marketplace, and that on a daily basis. And there we saw he met some philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers to be exact, the text tells us that, who after insulting Paul, they brought him to the Areopagus, which is basically the city council. And they wanted him to explain this strange new teaching. And so we have in our text this morning, again, Acts 17, this time beginning at verse 22, we have a rare and, and a really uh, important, a priceless glimpse into how the apostle bore witness, not only to simply a pagan audience, but to a culturally sophisticated, intellectual pagan audience. There's really nothing quite like this in the New Testament. So we'll make four points here. The first one is Athenian religion. Athenian religion. And then creation. Providence. And then the fourth point is repentance and resurrection. Repentance and resurrection. So I have Athenian religion. Creation. Providence. Repentance and resurrection. So first, Athenian religion. So this is a public hearing. Paul's public hearing begins in verse 22. He stands in the midst of the Areopagus. The hill of Ares, the hill of Mars, the god of war. And he says, men of Athens. He's respectful. Even gentle. For all of his fierce disagreement... He does not become arrogant or agitated. You know, one of the key texts for Christian defense of the faith, what we call apologetics, defending the faith, is in 1 Peter 3, and it says we have to be ready. We have to be prepared to offer a reasoned defense for the hope that's in us. But, Peter says, but with meekness and respect. So here's Paul. He's provoked sharply by the city's idolatry. But he offers this defense with meekness and with respect. Forcefulness, but with respect. And it's important because the greatest arguments in the world are regularly ruined by the temperament of the ones making the argument. So the temperament of the apologist, the defender, is important. We bear witness. But even more fundamentally... We are witnesses. So Paul, in this vein, he continues. He says, I perceive that you're very religious. This is not an insult. It's certainly not flattery. It's more like a simple statement of fact. And it might might carry a slight connotation of you're superstitious. He says, I walked around... And I looked carefully at your objects of worship. The idea here for looking carefully is related to the English word for theorize. So Paul is developing, 
he's scrutinizing and he's developing a coherent theory of their idolatry. He sees it and he's theorizing. And as he's doing this, he tells us that, he tells them that he found this inscription near an altar to an unknown God. It's an amazing inscription. It's like a memorial plaque to an unknown God. One scholar says about this inscription, he says, in Greek antiquity, cases were not rare in which anonymous altars to unknown gods or the God to whom it may concern were erected when people were convinced, you know, perhaps after experiencing some deliverance or some favorable event, that some deity that they don't know had been gracious to them. And they're not sure of the deity's name, so they erect an altar to the God whom it may concern. And Paul seizes on this inscription, and it becomes sort of like the text of his sermon. And you can see here that Paul's approach in Athens is a lot like what he said in Romans chapter 1. Right, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that all men and women, every human person, by virtue of creation, he says, they know God. They know God, he says in Romans 1, but they suppress or they hold that down in unbelief. Every unbeliever is a secret believer. All men have what John Calvin called a sense of divinity imprinted on their natures. Well, we don't mean here that all men are orthodox confessing Christians, but all men know God. They have a sense of God's being, and they suppress it. Not long ago, there was a, a story uh, in the New York Times on how evolutionary scientists are looking for what they call the God gene. And they recognized that belief in God of some sort is virtually universal in human history. It's virtually universal. And they, they even spoke of how children seem to find the idea of God entirely incredible without being coached or coaxed. And so what these scientists are trying to do, they hope to isolate the gene. There must be a God gene since everyone's got this God thing in all cultures and all times, some sense of this God thing. Now, it, it seems that they're hoping to reduce the whole phenomenon of religion to biology. But of course, all it would actually prove is that God made us with an instinctive desire for himself, and that desire is rooted in our very physical being. So people have this universal sense of God, but coupled with it, is the fact that we smother it. We distort it in ignorance. And that's the point that Paul is subtly making here when he picks this inscription out to an unknown God. There's a religiosity in Athens, a belief in God of some sort, but due to our suppression, our distortion, he remains unknown. Right, notice, Paul does not argue he never does this. He does not argue for the existence of God. He assumes they know God exists. Their whole culture indicates that they know God exists. 
What he does is he indicts their ignorance, which leaves God as unknown. So he continues. Verse 23. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. He's not saying that the Athenians worship the Christian God in ignorance. He's not saying that. He's saying they worship in ignorance and he's going to proclaim the true God to them. Notice his boldness. I will proclaim to you the true God. He preaches. He proclaims. Sometimes we think there's two things. One is defending the faith and the other is preaching the gospel. But for Paul, they go together. They're integrated. He's defending and preaching at the same time. And notice, Paul here, he is never, ever, even for one instant, neutral. Because neutrality is a myth. There are no neutral people. He doesn't pretend that he can set aside his convictions and then get to some neutral place, some detached place, and reason with them. Paul does not believe in this. Reason he will indeed do here, he will reason. But he will reason from the vantage point of the Christian vision of reality. This is very important because our culture teaches us that somehow we have to be neutral and objective. I had a professor who used to say that uh, Christians, when they defend their faith, are a lot like a man walking down the street with a sword, a sharp sword in their hand. The sword here is a metaphor for the Bible and the Word of God. And they meet the unbeliever. The unbeliever comes up to them on the street and they begin to talk about God. And Christians say, I've got this sword here. Let me tell you about it. And the unbeliever says, well, I don't believe in your sword. I don't think your sword is valid. And the Christian says, okay, let me put the sword down. And then they get mugged. (laughs) But they wanted to be neutral, right? They wanted to be fair. They wanted to be objective. It's irrelevant if the other party doesn't believe in the existence of your sword. Just cut them with it. Right? (laughs) Just use it. That's what Paul does here. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, Greek pantheists don't believe in the stuff I believe in, so I'm going to just lay aside all the stuff I believe in and pretend I believe in nothing and see if I, myself believing in nothing and the Greeks believing in their gods, maybe I can get them from there over to my God. He never does that. Never, ever, ever does that. That's because Jesus is Lord and there's no neutrality. So, this speech also, note, is a good example of what today is called contextualization. If you go to a seminary or you take any missions courses or you're involved in missionary work, you'll hear this word all the time. It's a fine word. Paul recognizes the context he's in. That's what contextualization is about. And throughout this discourse, he's going to do a number of things which show his deep knowledge of their culture. So this is important to to, to grasp, right? When we preach the gospel, we're always preaching it to some real people who have a real history in a real context. And it's wise and it's necessary. In fact, love demands that we know the culture and use whatever is in it to lead people to Christ. But the key is that the apostle does this without ever buying into the unbelieving assumptions of the culture. Paul is constantly doing something like this. He's saying, oh, you believe that. Okay, 
Um, here's what I can affirm about this, but he affirmed, when he affirms it, he sort of transposes it into another key, basically a Christian key. That, that's hard to do, beloved. It's, hard, it's a trained skill. That's why this Acts 17 is so important. He doesn't say, oh, look, you, you have a part of the truth, I have the other part, let's add them together. He says, no, I'm going to take what I can affirm, but I'm going to set it inside my vision of the, of the world. And that's what he does. So that's Athenian religion. The second point is creation. He begins here in verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He starts with God the creator. And this is because the gospel is unintelligible without the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's interesting, Paul does not think in, so, in certain contexts like this that he can just start with Jesus. He says, well, Jesus only makes sense in the Christian vision of thing, in the Christian view of reality. So I'm going to start with the Creator. Because the Christian vision, or what we call the Christian worldview, is a whole. It's a seamless whole. And every part of it requires every other part of it. You can't defend the faith in pieces. Even though you might only be talking about one thing at a time with an unbelieving person, you're always talking about everything. Right? We have to defend the, the whole enchilada. So remember what Paul is dragged in front of this council about? Jesus and the resurrection. We saw that last night. He said, we want you to they said, we want you to tell us more about Jesus and the resurrection. He says, okay, here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with the Creator. Again, he doesn't try and argue them to God. He just begins with God and argues in the framework. And so what's he done? He's established something very important, that there's a distinction between the creator and the creation. That's what, he said. That's what verse 24 does, one of the things it does. And so in one fell swoop, he's opposed the Stoics and the Epicureans who were basically materialists and pantheists. They, pantheists is someone who thinks everything is God. God is everything and everything's God. How can that be then if there's a distinction, if there's a creator on the one hand and a creation on the other? And so he declares, this Lord of heaven and earth doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he worshipped or served by human hands as if he needed anything, Paul says. Right? This is a complete judgment on their shrines and all their temples and on their altars. It's a very courageous thing to say in the context of a city swarming with temples and altars. The whole plethora of your city's gods, Paul is saying, is something of an ignorant failure to understand the Creator God. He's tactful about it. He doesn't put it quite that way. But he declares the Creator and says, he's not, he's not worshipped by these works of human hands. He, he's the one who gives life and breath to all things. So he doesn't need your altars or your sacrifices or your rituals. It'd be hard to begin with anything more decisive than this. This is why Paul starts here. Men have this idea that God needs their sacrifices. He needs their religiosity. He needs our... He needs our Attempts to build our way up from where we are up to God. But the gospel comes from above to below. 
So Paul is sensitive to the context, sure, but he's faithful to his conviction. Notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't cite chapter and verse. If you read Paul in the synagogues, or if he's writing to a Christian church, he'll quote the Old Testament and tell you where it comes from. Here, he doesn't do that because he has a Greek pagan audience that doesn't know anything about the Old Testament. But don't don't mistake that for the fact that Paul has given up on the Bible. There are about 22 allusions to the Old Testament in this little speech. So he's drawing from the Old Testament, but he's not citing it. So he's taking the truth and he's wielding it to make it accessible to them in their language. And this is what we're always called to do. So next, the third point is providence. Against uh, Athenian superiority, he says in verse 26, he has made from one man or one blood every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. All right, so, much, so much for racial superiority. Right. Racism is prohibited because God made all human beings from one man. And they're all in the image of God. And so Paul says, not only did God do this, he determined, verse 26, he determined their, their time set for them, their boundaries, their places where they should live. In other words, he's saying God providentially orders the world. And so what is he doing? He's opposing these pagan notions of fate, of impersonal fate. He says the world is not governed by impersonal fate that keeps going around in cycles. It's governed by the personal providence of the Lord God. This looks like a harmless little speech from Paul. It's short, but he's blowing the whole foundations up of essentially ancient pagan religiosity. All nations, he says, their boundaries, their very geography, they're ordered by God, he says in verse 27, so that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might reach out for Him or grope for Him and find Him, Paul says. God orders all of history, political facts, geographical facts, historical facts, so that men might seek Him. But, it, but in our ignorance, Paul says here, we, we end up, he uses the word that says we end up like groping like blind men against a wall feeling around in the dark, right? And instead of finding God, we erect altars to an unknown God. But God is near us, he says. It's not God's fault that we don't find him. Verse 28, he's not far from each of us. And every culture, as we saw with the New York Times article, every culture bears witness to this nearness, this sense of the divine. And certainly the Athenians did. In verse 28, Paul cites Epimenides. Epimenides is a 6th century B.C. Cretan poet. Paul knows these guys. He cites him. In him we live and move and have our being. This is really instructive because it's a classic example of, of how Paul cites a pagan source. He cites Epimenides, but he's not buying into Epimenides' pantheism 
For Epimenides, in him we live and move and have our being, meant that everything is a part of God. But for Paul, it points to the Christian truth that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. That in Christ all things consist. That we live and move and have our being by God's sovereign power. This is what I meant when I said Paul will take something from the culture and transpose it into a Christian key. So the pagan poet, just like pagan religion, does in some sense witness to the truth of God. But it does it in in a distorted way. So, it's important to make this distinction. This is quite different than the fashionable idea that all religions have a part of the truth, maybe some a little more, maybe some a little less, and they're all basically after the same thing. By the way, no no real contemporary researchers of world religions actually believe this anymore, but it is a commonplace. That's not what Paul's affirming. We'll see more about this in a minute. He continues, though, he continues his little pagan poetry recitation in the middle of verse 28. As some of your own poets have said. Notice here, poets is plural. Paul's saying, look, I could cite a number of them if I want to, but I'll cite one. He cites one. We are his offspring. This comes from a third century B.C. poet named Aratus. And Aratus, of course, would have taken this in a, in a, in a non-pagan sense. I mean, a non-Christian sense. We are his offspring for him would have meant a sort of uh, either everybody's a part of God or everybody's equally God's child. But Paul says, well, I can acknowledge that the doctrine of creation rightly entails the idea, in one sense, that we are all God's children. He also cites, Paul also cites Menander, who's another pagan poet in 1 Corinthians 15. Not here, but in 1 Corinthians 15. So here's an important question if you want to talk to the culture. How many pagan poets can you cite? I mean, you're going to have to be able to cite some of them to your contemporaries. I mean, how many pagan writers, playwrights, authors, filmmakers are you familiar with? Apparently, Paul's familiar with a good number of them. It'd be very hard to do what Paul is doing here in a city like Athens, and we have plenty of cities like this today, without any engagement with the culture of the day. Remember, God used the Babylonian literature and culture to prepare Daniel. And he used Egyptian education system to prepare Moses. And Paul can cite Greek poets over a six or seven century span. So we're never to compromise, of course. These things have to be used with discernment. But that's not the same as living in an echo chamber where all we ever hear are our own thoughts echoed back to us. Read some pagans. Because that's the culture you're going out into. So in verse 29, Paul gives a critique. By the way, this this question 
of Christians engaging non-Christian literature. Goes, you can find this back in the second and third century Greek fathers of the church. Basil the Great, the third century Greek father, has a whole treatise on reading and studying pagan literature for Christian youth and how to do it with discernment and care. So in verse 29, Paul gives a critique of the Athenian idols. And, and this critique comes straight from the Hebrew prophets. He says, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design or skill. He's, he's asserting the immateriality of God, the transcendence of God, the ineffability of God. Now he's just shown, he just cited a bunch of poets, he's just shown that he has no trouble with the liberal arts. It's not like Paul is, is a, a dullard who doesn't like sculpture and statues. But his doctrine of creation is such that it's not going to allow him to think that God can be manipulated or have his nature represented in human sculpture or stonework. This is a crass theological error. God is the creator, Lord, sovereign and transcendent in his freedom. He's always beyond our grasp. He always retains his lordly sovereignty. He is always subject and never object. And so he, he's not going to be um, corralled by our altars and our shrines. And that brings us to the fourth point. Repentance and resurrection. He says in verse 30, speaking of the past history, these times of ignorance God overlooked. This doesn't mean that God winked at sin in the past. It simply means that prior to the coming of Christ in the gospel, God did not confront the nations in the way he does now. He confronted Israel to be sure, but he patiently overlooked the wayward Gentile nations. But now that Christ has come and the good news explodes beyond the borders of Israel, then we can see in verse 30 that God commands all people everywhere to repent. This is a very important part of the speech. It's a call to repentance. And the fact that Paul ends this way shows that he's not affirming the Athenians in their basic religiosity. He's saying... What you need to do is what we all need to do. Repent. The call is for wholesale repentance. And it's this call to repentance at the end of this speech which enables us to, to see that Paul is not saying, I, I sort of half agree with you. Some of your poets and philosophers have half the truth. Let me see if I can add a few extra truths to, to the truths you have and bring you over to Christianity. That's how this speech is often read. But it's misread. Right? Paul calls for repentance, a turning. And the reason why is given in verse 31, because God has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice. So Paul has very briefly, in the span of what, eight or nine verses, he set forth God as the creator, as the sustainer, as the providential ruler, and now the father and judge of all. He's fixed a, a certain day of judgment, he says, by the man whom he has appointed. You can see that in the middle of verse 31. So notice this. Right here at the end, Jesus is mentioned for the first time. The very first time. 
That's because Paul recognizes Jesus needs a context. Jesus is a bewildering mystery and, and, and miracle without the context of creation and Israel and her long history. And how does Paul know that Jesus will judge the world? It's interesting the way he finishes here. It highlights his whole method. You can see it at the end of verse 31. He says, God has given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. Notice again, Paul did not try and prove the existence of God. He starts with the existence of God. And notice what he doesn't do here either. He does not try and prove the resurrection. He declares the resurrection. And get this, he says that the resurrection proves the final judgment. This text is also often misread. That somehow Paul's making an argument for the resurrection. He's simply proclaiming that God raised Jesus from the dead and therefore Jesus will judge the world at the end of history. So ask yourself this question if you're an Athenian listening to this. How does a man being raised from the dead prove that that man will judge the whole world? This cannot be established by a syllogism. You can't go to a whiteboard and say A was raised from the dead, therefore it follows that A is the judge of the whole world. It doesn't entail anything other than a quite strange and fantastic fact. Somebody was raised from the dead. The unbeliever could just take that fact and throw it over their shoulder into Ripley's Believe It or Not. Nobody has to believe that just because somebody was raised from the dead, they're the judge of the whole world. Weird stuff happens, man. Strange, strange stuff happens. But you see, Paul is arguing from inside the Christian framework of things. And inside the Christian framework, this makes perfect sense. Right? God fulfilled all the promises to Israel. He raised Jesus from the dead. The judged one has now become the judge and he will judge the world. So it's very important to see Paul's not being neutral at all. So for Paul, the right model of the relationship of Jerusalem to Athens, you might remember last week I gave, it, gave you at least four possible ways of relating Jerusalem, Christian thought to Athens, unbelieving thought. That was Tertullian's famous question. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens? For Paul, the right model is Jerusalem, the capital of Athens. Right. Unbelieving thought is to be engaged robustly. We're not afraid of it. Paul's not afraid of anything. In fact, it's clear he's read the stuff. He engages stuff, but he doesn't pretend that anyone's neutral. He's not neutral, and the Athenians are not neutral. I'm not neutral. You're not neutral. Your unbelieving mother's not neutral. There's no neutrality. And so... It's a very instructive thing here about engaging the culture, reworking the things you find in it in the right framework. And, and Paul is really an inspired exemplar for us in this. He does it with respect. He does it with love, but he does it with a certain fierceness as well. And so imitate the apostle. Imitate the apostle and rest in the glory of God, the creator, the sustainer, the orderer of all things, the father of all. The one who has made himself known in Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, the coming judge of the world. Amen.